was two friends just at that point, you know. He was a pretty good looking guy then. Notice the past tense. <laughs> I really didn't have sense enough to know a good thing when I saw it. I had a mutual friend, who, she told me one day I was out of my mind if I didn't marry her, so I did. <laughs> I was pretty rough. And over the years, her and Christ have known me considerably. She, she's a saint. <laughs> you don't see the halo from putting up with me. Well, here we are in week two of our series on marriage that we are calling We Harmony, not to be confused with E-Harmony. We're dealing with what happens after the wedding rather than what happens before the wedding. And our objective in this series is to superimpose God's Word over the husband and wife relationship. But we're finding in the process that even if you're single or single again because of death or divorce, these very same values that will strengthen the marriage bond can be applied to other relationships as well. Your relationship with your parents, children, siblings, in-laws, and friends. Last week we looked at commitment in marriage. Only you was our song today. All you need is love. So you married men here this morning, do you remember the first time that you laid eyes on your wife. I have a vivid memory of the first time I saw Kayleen. She had just come down the steps of Lincoln Christian Church. She was standing at the corner of McLean and Pekin Streets talking to her parents. Until that moment, I had only heard about her and I had only seen her photograph. It would be another year before we were formally introduced, but that first day I saw her, I drove around the block three more times to get a second and a third and a fourth look. Guys, do you remember when you knew there was chemistry, but you tried to play it cool to keep it from showing too much? The first time your hands touched by accident, but then you both held on. And what about your first kiss? Do you remember that? I do. I remember thinking, those Beach Boys knew what they were singing about in the 60s. Good, 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 good vibrations. <laughs> now, <laughs> I know I need to work on my falsetto. I, I'm, I'm going to get out there to the uh, Crossroads Worship Arts Academy and I promise to do better next time. Do you remember when you stayed out too late talking, wanting to find out everything you could about her, not wanting the conversation to end? And do you remember when you knew you were in love and you said it to her and she said it to you or vice versa, the night Kayleen told me that she loved me? I almost broke my neck trying to do a backflip off a stump. Do you remember the circumstances of asking her to marry you? Do you remember how you felt when she said yes? Do you remember your wedding day when you made a commitment to be no longer two but one? Well, what about this one? Do you remember the day that you realized that maintaining a vital marriage 
takes a whole lot more work than you imagined. Robert Keeler explains, marriage is like twirling a baton, doing a handspring, or eating with chopsticks. It looks easy until you try it. <laughs> you find out early on in marriage that there are some inherent differences in women and men. And it's a little bit like the differences between cats and dogs. And I'm going to leave it up to you to determine which one is which. Here we go. Cats do what they want. They rarely listen to you. They're totally unpredictable. When you want to play, they want to be alone. When you want to be alone, they want to play. Cats expect you to cater to their every whim. They're moody and they leave hair everywhere. <laughs> Dogs, on the other hand, spend all day sprawled on the most comfortable piece of furniture in the house. They can hear a package of food opening half a block away, <laughs> but they don't hear you when you're in the same room. They can look dumb and lovable all at the same time. They growl when they're not happy. They leave their toys everywhere. When you want to play, they want to play. When you want to be alone, they want to play. <laughs> Celebrating their uh, 60th wedding anniversary, a couple in their 80s toasted each other. Standing behind the punch bowl in front of family and friends, he said, after 60 years together, I've found you tried and true. Well, she was a little bit hard of hearing, and she responded, Well, I'm tired of you too. <laughs> but although it may be unpredictable for a, for a couple to be tired of each other, or predictable for some, I suppose, to be tired of their differences in each other, it really shouldn't be that way. Because just as children go through developmental stages from birth to senior adulthood, marriages go through similar passages. Psychologists Minnerith and Myers have identified five phases that a married couple passes through to build a strong and a deeply satisfying marriage. Here they are. The first stage is young love. That's typically the first two years of marriage. We call it the honeymoon stage as couples begin to overcome their idealistic notions and expectations of marriage and start to become one. And then there's the phase called realistic love. That's years three through ten, often the most dangerous stage of the marriage, in the process of buying and establishing a home, in the process of adding children to the family, getting settled in a career. And then there's the comfortable love stage, years 11 to 25, like oatmeal, not exactly exciting, but comfortable, warm, and satisfying. In this phase, beware of the perception of boredom and the frequency of midlife crisis. Then there's renewing love, that's years 26 to 35, right after the, the 25th anniversary. The time of accepting the inevitable loss of parents, time of adjusting to the empty nest as your children become independent. But it can also be a time of recommitment. It can also be a time of rediscovering each other. And then there's the final stage of married love, 
and that is transcendent love, age 36 or year 36 in the marriage and thereafter, often the best season of marriage, enjoying adult children, enjoying grandchildren, and experiencing spiritual oneness. Now, I would imagine that as we went through these, you have already mentally inserted yourself into one of these five categories. But regardless of what marital stage you're in, whether you're still in the young love stage or you have moved to the transcendent love stage, remember this, that the foundation of your marriage, the cornerstone on which you build in every season of marriage is commitment. And with this in mind, let's go to a familiar passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 30, where we plug into God's directive to husbands. And what we discover, men, is that your wife's greatest need is found in the slightly modified title of the well-known Beatles song, All She Needs Is Love. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of His body." Now, men, I want you to notice there that love is a command. Listen, it's not a feeling. It has to do with the exercise of the will, not the temperature of the heart. Three times in these six verses, husbands are commanded to love their wives. And Paul does not say, marry and stay with her as long as she appeals to you. Marry and stay with her until someone else comes along that's younger and more put together. Marry and stay with her until you get financially well off enough to trade up. That's not what he says. It's a command of Scripture. You must love your wife. If you're going to enter into holy matrimony, and if you're going to remain in the will of God, you must love your wife with committed love. Romance is a more of an involuntary emotion. Society equates love and romance, but listen, they are not the same. Love and romance are not the same. And romance is celebrated, it's equated with love out there in the marketplace, and it's celebrated in the music of every generation. Perry Como sang, Some Enchanted Evening. You will find your true love across a crowded room. You, you, you get the idea. Frank Sinatra sang, Strangers in the night, exchanging glances. Elvis Presley sang, I can't help falling in love with you. There's more of that, but you have to pay to get it. <laughs> the Righteous Brothers sang, You've lost that love and feeling, now it's gone, gone, gone. 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and then this group, the Doors, came along with this, uh, Hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? <laughs> Jennifer Lopez, <laughs> you're not going to get any Jennifer Lopez. So. She's saying, love don't cost a thing. Now, now folks, listen. <laughs> these titles and these lyrics are just representative. But come on, it's pretty superficial stuff. And, and I like the captivating melodies too, but the lyrics are, are really just kind of silly in light of the biblical mandate for husbands to love their wives. The word in the original Greek New Testament is agape, which is an intentional giving of yourself to the person loved. It's a matter of the will. It's actually doing the right thing instead of the feel-good thing. Doing the right thing, love, versus the feel-good romance thing. Jay Adams, in his book, the Christian Counselor's Manual tells the sad but true story of a man who approached his pastor to say, I know you're going to hate this, but my wife and I don't love each other anymore. We're thinking about getting a divorce. And the pastor said, well, I am disappointed to hear that because the Bible commands, husbands, love your wives. He said, well, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I can't love her. I mean, the feeling for her is dead. I have no attraction to her at all. I really feel nothing. And the pastor said, well, let's go to a lower level then. The Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. She's your closest neighbor. So you see, you've got to love her. He said, well, I'm going to be really honest with you, pastor. I despise her. I hate the way she talks. I don't like the way she mothers our kids. She turns me off by the way she acts in public. I hate the way she looks. I can't stand her. The pastor said, I'm sorry because now you have to go down another level. The Bible says love your enemies. You've got to love her. He said, how in the world can I do that? And the pastor said, well, first of all, you're going to have to understand that the love you're talking about is a feeling. And the love that the Bible talks about is obedience, doing the right thing, even when you don't feel like it. So make a list of the things you would do if you were madly in love with her and then do those things, whether you feel like it or not. The guy said, I couldn't do that. That's hypocritical. The pastor said, no. No, that's not hypocritical. Hypocrisy is acting contrary to the way you believe, not the way you feel. When you act contrary to the way you feel, that's obedience. 1 John 5, 3, this is love for God. To obey His commands and His commands are not burdensome. So, are we good so far? Are you with me? Committed love is a matter of the will. It is a matter of objective obedience, not a subjective emotional feeling. It's not a warm fuzzy. That's romance. So in practical terms, what does this committed love that we're supposed to have for our wives, what does it look like? I'm glad you asked because the answer is in the text I just read a moment ago. First of all, love her 
sacrificially. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Now, men, this is such a tall order because the standard for loving our wives is the love of Jesus for the church, and He gave Himself up for the church, His bride. And each of us is to give ourselves up for our bride. Jesus gave up heaven for us. He sacrificed His life for us, Philippians 2, 6 and 8. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He loved us when we were unlovely. He loved us when we were unlovable, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we husbands are to give ourselves up for our brides. We are to sacrifice for our wives. So ask yourself this morning, would I die for my wife if I was called upon to do so? That's the literal application here. And some husbands would say, yes, they'd step up and they'd stand up and they'd say, yes, in a heartbeat, I would, I would give my life for my wife. But sometimes the same guy who claims he would lay down his life for his wife might refuse, flatly refuse, to attend church with her, even though he knows it means something to her. He might, he might not be willing to give up a bad habit for her. He may refuse to help in the kitchen around the house. He may not be conscientious about managing money responsibly. He may refuse to get up with the kids or never make time to talk to her. So what do you think it means to sacrifice for your wife? Listen, it will give your wife a powerful message when you sacrifice yourself for her. It'll cause her to involuntarily defer to you, appreciate you, respect you as her husband. So, go shopping with her instead of watching a ball game sometime. I can't believe I just said that. I feel like such a hypocrite right now. But she's probably sat in the bleachers with you when she would rather be visiting antique stores, change the channels for her. Watch a Hallmark movie with her once in a while. It wouldn't hurt. She's probably suffered silently more than once when you tied up the TV to watch baseball or golf. <laughs> and something happens when you sacrifice for another person. You know what it is? You grow in your capacity to love them. It's like a mother with a newborn baby. That child is nothing but an inconvenience. Nocturnal feedings, diaper changes, cleaning up after them, bath time, patiently attending to them when they're inconsolable. But an interesting thing happens when you sacrifice for that child. Your love grows. It's a funny thing. It's the upside-down way of Jesus to sacrifice and serve and to feel good about it. But on the other hand, if you're self-indulgent and self-serving, it drains away your good feelings and it diminishes your capacity to love. Good feelings follow when you obey God. 
And if you don't have a good feeling about your marriage, men, you might want to honestly assess whether you truly love her with a sacrificial love. Are you giving yourself up for her? I heard a sermon on marriage a few years back. One humorous line stayed with me. If you treat your wife like a thoroughbred, you won't wind up being married to a nag. Not a bad line. Love her sacrificially. Secondly, love her thoughtfully. Look at verses 26 and 27 in the text. Christ gave Himself up for the church to make her holy, cleansing her, to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. It's reassuring for all of us as Christians that when Jesus looks at us, He does not see our faults. He does not see our sins. We've been forgiven. We've been adopted into His family. We're washed, and we are without guilt. We abide in Him in a state of forgiveness. Likewise, a husband is to overlook his wife's flaws and to spiritually lead her. Now, this means that you don't keep reminding her of the unwise decisions that she might have made, especially in the early years of your marriage. And if she violated your trust and you've worked through it with confession and forgiveness, don't keep blackmailing her verbally or emotionally. Like Jesus with our sins, they're buried in the deepest sea, and a sign has been posted, no fishing. So she may show little concern for her outward appearance, and she may not be the life of the party, and she may not always acknowledge your compliments, and she may not keep a neat house, but you see her as radiant, without stain or wrinkle or blemish. Something else, never, and I mean never, criticize her physically. Love her thoughtfully. Tony Campolo says, as you get older, the qualities you admire in the opposite sex should mature. So if you're 50 and you're attracted to 21-year-olds, there's something wrong with you. You have arrested development. You haven't grown up. Maturity means that you find character and poise more appealing than smooth skin or a girlish figure. There are some middle-aged men these days with the emotional maturity of a 14-year-old. And if you're looking back wistfully on your high school days, you're stuck. If you're staring at images of girls young enough to be your daughter or your granddaughter, you have got a problem, please, please get some help. Now, my wife and I like to watch reruns of old TV shows, and I noticed a while back we were watching Leave It to Beaver, and June Cleaver came on. June Cleaver is looking more attractive these days. I decided that if we're watching Beverly Hillbillies and Granny starts looking good, that's time to hang it up. <laughs> Agatha Christie, the famous mystery novelist, once wrote, an archaeologist is the best husband a woman can have because the older you get, the more interested in you he becomes. 
Valerie Runyon tells the story. She said, after our last child left home for college, my husband was resting next to me on the couch with his head in my lap. And I carefully removed his glasses, and then I told him sweetly, you know, honey, without your glasses, you look like the handsome man I married. And he replied with a grin, honey, without my glasses, you still look pretty good too. <laughs> my guess is he probably got to sleep on that same couch that night. <laughs> love her sacrificially, love her thoughtfully, men. Love her considerately. Verses 28 and 29, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. He feeds and cares for her just as Christ does the church. Willard Hartley has a best-selling book called His Needs and Her Needs. It ought to be required reading in every premarital counseling relationship. It lists the five things that a wife needs most from her husband, and here they are. Number one, she needs affection. She needs to know that she is loved and that she's valued. Men, learn your wife's primary love language. There's a book called The Five Languages of Love, and the author identifies the five languages of love, the five ways that we communicate love to another person, and they are acts of service and time and affirming words and physical touch and gifts. Now, I say... I say primary love language because all five of these are relevant, but there is one love language that your wife understands best. I hope as you sit in church today, you know her love language or you will discover what it is. Which one of these five, time, deeds of service, affirming words, physical touch, gifts? When I got control of this information, it set me on a higher plane as a husband. Secondly, she needs conversation from you. Your wife needs for you to communicate with her. Now listen, guys, it'll only take a couple of minutes to get it started, get the ball rolling, and then she'll take it from there, and you can just sit back and hear what she's thinking and feeling. You want to know where her heart is? You've got to communicate. It's the only way to know. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Thirdly, she needs trust from you. She needs honesty and openness from you. Tell her what is, not what she wants to hear. Tell her the truth, even in the little areas and in the big areas. A secret affair or accessing pornography or a secret gambling or drug addiction is so devastating to a wife because it erodes her trust in you, and her trust could be badly damaged by your secrets, trust. And then fourthly, financial security. She wants enough money to live without anxiety, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. If anyone does not provide, especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is where we have to really make an honest effort in this day and time to provide financial security for our families. And then fifth and last, she needs to know that you are committed to the family. She needs for her husband to be a good father to the children and to relate well to the family, to be sensitive and to be responsive to their needs. And I would add, don't forget her family of origin. 
They may be difficult, but don't forget her family of origin. Do your best to let your family commitment not only be to your nuclear family, but also to your and her family of origin as much as possible. Well, I've got to close. A couple that had been married 15 years began to have a lot of disagreements. They wanted their marriage to work, so they adopted an idea. For a month, they would each deposit little pieces of paper in each other's fault box, a place for each to let the other know about daily irritations. And the wife was detailed and diligent. Wet towels on the floor, food left out of the refrigerator, dirty socks not in the hamper. <laughs> At the end of the month, they exchanged boxes, and the husband read about all the wrong things he had done. Then the wife opened her box, and she began reading slip after slip, all with the same message, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's what I'm talking about, men. That's what I'm talking about. Let's do it. Let's do it as Christian men. Let's love our wives like crazy. Love her sacrificially. Love her thoughtfully. Love her considerately because this is the way that we are loved by Jesus. And as we come to the close of this service this morning, if that love of Jesus has never been real to you, maybe you can see it in the text that we just examined. This is the way Jesus loves the church. He wants you to be adopted into His family. Our section hosts will be visible and available to you as we stand for this worship song. If you have a decision to make, if you're ready to respond to the love of Christ, to His invitation for you to belong to Him, to be forgiven by Him, then we invite you to come. If you have a decision to make about Crossroads, we'll be here to meet you out in the aisles. The section hosts are here at the front as we stand together.